Today, we're only talking about one dichotomy because we want to make this short and simple and to the point. Um, so, start us off, Colby. What is prone and supine? What are we describing here? So, in physiotype, every type is a prone type or a supine type. So, the high-level description of supine is that um, in behavior, you're generally reactionary. Um, and the general description of prone is that in behavior, you usually take the initiative or you're just not reactionary. Um, we'll talk more about behavior later on, so I'll leave it at that for now. And a high-level description as far as physical appearance, outside edges of any shape are higher up. We call them prone. Inside edges of any shape are higher up. We call it supine. So evil people look prone and sad people look <laughs> supine. <laughs> um, it really is kind of that simple. So in this case, evil people are the prone, sad people are the supine. Um, would you say this relates at all to real people? Yes. <laughs> so in my opinion, uh, jerks are actually more often supine, but psychopaths are more often prone. So jerks are usually jerks because they're reactionary. They hurt on the inside and they have more emotions. Having emotions itself is kind of a supine thing. Um, lacking emotions is kind of a prone thing, wouldn't you say? Yeah, yeah, definitely. So even anger, anger is felt more often by supine people than it is by prone. I would venture to guess that. Just because supine people generally have more feelings in general. <laughs> and I, it tracks well with reactionary versus initiating. Someone who's more emotive is much more likely to react than someone who is not. Exactly. So... The way this relates to MBTI is that prone is analogous to T and supine is analogous to F. So in theory, anyways, any type that's an F type is more likely to be supine and any type that is a T type is going to be prone. So an NTJ... More likely to be... Go ahead. Sorry, I was just going to say, and we mean more likely to be prone or supine both in behavior and appearance. Right, of course. So... Someone who is an STP is more likely to have, let's take eyebrows, for example. It's more likely to have their eyebrows pointing downwards. So the outer edge of their eyebrows will be higher up and the inner edges of their eyebrows will be pointing down towards their nose. Conversely, an NFP, for example, is more likely to have the opposite be true. Have their outer brow be lower than average and have their, their inner brow higher up than average. Yeah, absolutely. And I like that you said on average, because in general, people's eyebrows are by definition prone. Like generally, the eyebrow shape is such that the outside edges of eyebrows are almost always higher than the inside edges. So really, we are, we are thinking like, oh, on average, are their outside edges higher or lower? If you were to take an average of every person's eyebrow on the planet, and just make a shape out of those measurements and then take an individual to compare those measurements against. If that individual is prone, then the outer edge of their eyebrows will be higher up than the average that you've created. We are talking about the apex of eyebrows because if you look at eyebrows, they, they go up, they reach an apex, and then they come down again. So we're kind of talking about from the apex to the, go from the apex to the inside. That's kind of what we're talking about. Um, we don't pay as much attention to, like, uh, outside the apex. Definitely. So if you were to pay attention to the very far corner, 
the very far outer corner of your eyebrow near your where your ears are, that's obviously going to be a bit lower than most of the rest of your eyebrow. So we try to pay attention to what what we'd say maybe three quarters of the way out. Yep. From your inner eyebrow, it's typically where an apex is, somewhere around there, right? Yep. So again, this is pretty analogous to F versus T and MBTI. It's not a perfect analog. Um, I haven't been very in tune with how MBTI works for a couple of years now. But from my understanding, T is very much related to rational behavior, uh, lack of emotion, both of which can be true for prone. But that tends to be around where the correlation stops. A prone person... Or to say someone is prone is probably a bit more descriptive than to say someone is T. For example, someone who is prone is more likely to be higher up in a social hierarchy. Uh, this is something that we've been able to describe and put into our definition of the word prone, which is missing from the definition of T in MBTI. Absolutely. And I would say to bring in the big five, prone generally tracks with disagreeableness so the more prone you are the less agreeable you are and that's mostly why people who are prone tend to be higher up in social hierarchies um if you're more likely to be disagreeable the people who are going to want to be agreeable are going to just let you do your thing absolutely yeah conversely someone who is supine you know the word supine it for us brings in this thought of like you said reactionary lower on the social ladder see i don't want to say that because i don't want to well i wouldn't i wouldn't say they're lower on the social ladder i would just say they're less likely to you know stand up for themselves they are higher in agreeableness and we know as a matter of fact that if you're higher in agreeableness then uh you know generally you are lower in social hierarchies or, or business hierarchies okay yeah no it's true perfect i think you said that better than i could have um it's because I'm more prone than you. It is. It is. I'm way more agreeable. Look at this. <laughs> well, we haven't discussed the differences between TE and TI and FE and FI. So differences between TE and TI, for example. Um, what would be some ways you could possibly see the difference physically? Generally, what I've noticed is, so with TI people, the apex of their eyebrows are usually closer in. And with TE people, the apex of their eyebrows are usually further out. So like if you were to draw just like a straight diagonal line, a straight prone line, um, like that typical evil eyebrow, you'll more often see that in very high TE people. While if you were to draw more of like a one of Jim Carrey's really evil, malevolent, cartoonish facial expressions, he'd be very prone, but the apex would be closer in. Um, so like looking at Benedict Cumberbatch, for instance, his apexes are quite far out. While if you look at a um, TI person who is prone, their apexes are a bit closer in. So like looking at my eyebrows, like I can look quite prone, but my eyebrows come down quite a bit on the outside after the apex. Right. And, and so people know, what type are you? Yeah, we haven't actually uh, discussed our types. So I am an NTP, or if you want to use uh, the E and I dichotomy, I'm an ENTP. Right. I am an NFP. I'm definitely extroverted. But yeah, so I'm ENFP. So so in this case, I'm TI and you're TE. But my TI is higher than your TE. 
just because I'm T. So, well, now we're really getting into the functions, which we haven't haven't done a lot of yet. Uh, I don't know how deep we want to go this function rabbit hole. <laughs> um, I I think maybe to give a brief overview of hmm. the whole function stack takes a long time. So for, for listeners who don't know what the cognitive functions are, see, you're right. It's a, it is a rabbit hole because it, how do you talk about the functions without getting into universal and local? We're going we're gonna to dedicate the majority of an entire episode to the function stack later on. Just for now, for anyone who doesn't already understand what cognitive functions are, there are eight different cognitive functions that you can combine to make the different personality types that are found in MBTI and also the personality types that we use in physiotype. Since we're only talking about prone and supine, we're only going to be talking about four of those functions. The TE and TI, which correlate with prone, and FE and FI, which correlate with supine. Again, we're, this is a very brief overview. We'll definitely be getting more in depth on the physical appearance of the different personality types. But as a brief overview, we've talked about the eyebrows a bit. They can be prone or supine, as we've said. But another physical body part that correlates with prone and supine is the eyeball shape. So the shape of your eyes. Uh, obviously, all eyeballs are round circles. So we're not talking about the eyeball itself. What we're talking about is the opening your yeah it's the opening where your flesh stops so i believe it's the skull opening itself like if you actually had a skull you could type someone uh and measure those holes as prone or supine but in addition to that it's also where the flesh ends and where you start to see the actual eyeball that also can be prone or supine and it's slightly related to the eyeball hole as well so i was going to say so for example daisy ridley her eyeball holes that sounds so nasty her eyeball holes are pretty prone as well as her eyebrows so she's a good example of a person who we could expect to be higher on a social ladder she's someone we could expect to be lower on the agreeableness scale than for example james franco who is very supine uh with james franco his eyebrows and his eye holes are also very supine Though in general, men on average are more prone, just as men are on average less agreeable. So there's always a confounding variable of uh, gender. But yeah, James Franco is pretty supine looking at him. Daisy Ridley's uh, pretty prone. And her, her eyeball holes are really prone too. It's not just her eyebrows. Um, they're unusually prone. Oftentimes you'll see prone people having prone eyebrows, but their eyeball holes are kind of normal looking but daisy she's um yeah very prone eyebrows very prone uh eyeball holes it's same thing with benedict cumberbatch going back to the example you pulled up before his eyebrows and his eyeball holes are very very prone so taking a look at daisy ridley like we said we're going to be going over physical appearance more later but she is stp based on our uh, analysis and benedict cumberbatch is ntj part of the process and analyzing someone's face to determine what type they are is looking at their eyebrows and at their eyeball holes. That's right. And then uh, since we've mentioned James Franco, Benedict Cumberbatch, and Daisy Ridley, um, we might also uh, talk about two other celebrities. Uh, <laughs> I guess celebrities might not be the right word for them. 
um, Anne Frank was very supine. If you look at her, uh, the apex of her eyebrows were really not much higher than the inside of her eyebrows. Um, her eyeball holes were, were fairly supine as well. When you see people make facial expressions as well, that kind of helps you type them. Lots of time people will do it. It's like a caricature of their static facial features when they do facial expressions. So lots of time when a, a supine person smiles, they'll do something especially supine. Or when a prone person smiles, they'll be especially prone. The other supine person we wanted to talk about was George Bush. He's got a nice looking face. He looks like a nice guy. You know, I bet we'd be friends. Um, he looks friendly. And the reason he looks friendly is because he's fairly supine. His eyeballs are fairly supine on average. His eyebrows are fairly supine on average. Exactly. Honestly, he does. He looks like someone who'd be fun to like take to a bar and have a couple drinks with and talk about baseball or something. Now I think uh, we should move on to behavior. Yes, take it away, Colby. Well, what about the prison example? Hopefully you can can uh, give your thoughts on this. So uh, if it's your first day in prison, um, and let's just say this is a caricature of prison as shown in movies, <laughs> uh, uh-huh. <laughs> there's two prone situations we want to discuss here. So if it's your first day in prison, uh, you go up to the biggest guy and punch him in the face. That's a prone behavior. Because you're taking an initiative to fight someone. That's very prone. If you were minding your own business and then someone attacked you and then you retaliated and got into a fight with them, even if you absolutely destroyed them and you won the fight, that is actually um, less prone because the, the reason why, yes, you are aggressive and violent, but the key thing here is that you are reactionary. So even though you fought back, you're actually reactionary. So a more prone thing to do if someone attacks you is to do nothing. That's actually technically more prone because now you're not reacting at all. That's perfect. So to bring that into a um, maybe a more relatable example is two people that are arguing. (laughs) No, it's a good example. But say you get into an argument with someone. They say something that is insulting to you. If you react to that insult by insulting them back, that is, by definition, a supine action. If you, for example, choose to say absolutely nothing, that is a more prone action. Um, and of course, it's more, it can be more, of course, it's more layered than that. You know, there's many more options than just those two that I've presented, but that's kind of the basic idea behind prone and supine. So prone chooses to act or chooses not to act. Supine, by default, reacts. It does not act on initiative and it does not choose to not react. These examples don't apply to aggression or violence either. Prone people generally are more likely to do things. Supine people are less likely to do things. As a very general rule, it's true, um, whether that's starting a business or murdering someone, prone people do things more often. It sounds trivially simple, but on average, that is the very simple definition of prone versus supine. Right. Especially anything that requires self-initiative. So it's way easier to find an STP that is a businessman than it is to find an SFP that's a businessman. 
Of course, there are SFPs that are businessmen. We're, again, we're talking about averages here. We can't look at an SFP and be like, I give a 100% chance probability that he is not a businessman. Like that, that would be silly and ridiculous. And there's more at play than just physiotype here. But again, on average, we could look at an SFP and be like, there's a 5% chance that he started his own business, for example. And we could look at an STP and be like, there's a 10% chance. There's a 15% chance that he plans on or is starting his own business. And in the case of the SFP, there's a 100% chance that that business involves opening up a rock climbing gym or opening a stand at the farmer's market. <laughs> <laughs> Honestly, it feels like it sometimes. <laughs> Should we talk about animals? Yes. So animals. Can physiotype affect animals? My short answer is yes, it can. Definitely. Before I get too much into detail about specific animals, in what ways have we seen physiotype affecting animals? I would say in the same way that we've seen physiotype affecting humans. I think on average, you know, carnivores are more prone, herbivores are more supine. It's especially with the prone-supine dichotomy. Because this dichotomy is probably the easiest to see in behaviors, um, we've been able to note physical appearance of individual animals or even entire species and associate different behaviors with those physical appearances. So one example that is probably the easiest to start with is uh, domesticated dogs versus wolves. Dogs, on average, are much more supine. Just physically, just looking at them physically. They are way more supine than your average gray wolf. Uh, their eye holes are way more supine. They're, depending on the dog, if they have markings where an eyebrow would be, they're almost always way more supine. Now, there are a couple dog breeds that are exceptions here. Um, pit bulls are pretty prone. Even then, though, I can easily see a gray wolf being more prone than a pit bull. Not only do we see this dichotomy physically, we also see this, obviously, in their behavior. Dogs are much, much more agreeable than wolves are. And sure, wolves, they do hunt in a pack. They are social animals. They do have to have a certain level of agreeableness. And in fact, if they didn't have that level of agreeableness, there's no way we would have ever domesticated them. But the fact remains that a domesticated dog is much more agreeable, not only to humans, but to other dogs than a gray wolf would ever be. You ain't going to find a gray wolf that's being nice to a gray wolf from a different clan you'll see dogs being agreeable with dogs that belong to other quote-unquote clans on the daily. Just go look at a dog park. Should we move on to felines? Because I'd like our listeners to uh, just guess, what do you think? Are cats more prone or more supine than dogs? I bet at this point it's obvious, right? Both in appearance and in behavior. 99.9999% of cats are more prone than your average dog well i love this thought too that um so you you would know in general cats and dogs have similar intellect level as far as we know what's the consensus there <sighs> zoologically i do not know it's 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 hard to compare because cats are more evenly based across the board yeah while dog intelligence varies greatly by the breed sure 
Um, I'd say a cat is probably on average more intelligent than a dog of similar size. Mm -hmm. And then let's think about what's, what's easier to train a dog of X level intelligence or a cat of X level intelligence, assuming they have the same level of intelligence. What's easier to train? Well, a dog by far, a dog is 10 times easier to train than a cat. And it's not because of intelligence. It's because of this prone supine dichotomy. Right. A dog is more likely to agree with your way of doing things. A cat is probably not going to care about your way of doing things. It's going to do things its own way every time. Um, and we, we even seen that. Do you have you ever had any pets, Colby? Have you ever had dogs or cats? Uh I had a fish once. No, I had a dog for like a year when I was young. I'm not, a, I'm not really an animal person. Okay. Okay. Dogs like people, people, um, you'll hear it said that cats don't like people. I don't think that's true at all. It probably depends a lot on the cat, but I, speaking from experience, I've had dogs and I've had cats and I've definitely had cats that like people. However, if you go up to a dog to in initiate interaction, it will almost never deny you that interaction. It will always react to the attention you give it. Cats, it's, I mean, you're lucky. You're very lucky if you initiate with a cat and the cat wants to initiate back with you. The cats are the kings of choosing to not initiate. And we can see, even if we had never interacted with cats or dogs before, we could have easily predicted this behavior based on how prone or supine these two animals are. Okay, so moving on to red foxes. Colby, have you ever heard of domesticated foxes? Have I ever talked to you about this? Uh, no. The basic rundown is in like the 1960s, maybe the 40s, something around... Wait, I around did! Oh my gosh, yes, I heard about this. This is the most fascinating genetic experiment I've ever heard in my entire life. Sorry. Yeah, yes. Yeah. Please take it away. All I right. love this. So in Russia, um, fox farms are still very common. They're very popular because, you know, fox fur is a very common um, item to sell, especially, you know, high end markets. Uh, I'm not going to go into the details of how that works, but the fact is there are fox farms that continue to run even today. So back in like the 60s, around that time, don't quote me in the year, scientists decided to take a look at this resource and try to do some genetic experiments on it. The goal was to see how long it would take to bring a completely wild population of red foxes and breed them to the point where they could consider them as domestic or almost as domesticated as dogs are today. So what they did was they would breed the foxes and any foxes that were especially agreeable to the, to the breeders would be allowed to breed together. And they, they actually did this in two ways. One breeding line was to get the most domesticated, most agreeable fox possible. And then they did a separate breeding line to get the least agreeable foxes possible and the breed in the highest amount of aggression. So they found that in less than 40 generations, they had foxes that were basically, for all intents and purposes, uh, domesticated. And not only were they domesticated in behavior, 
they found them having floppy ears, wagging their tails, performing all these different behaviors that we commonly associate with uh, domesticated dogs. So if we were to take a look at these foxes, and they're pretty common in the pet market now. Um, they're, hard to, they're hard to find, but they are out there. If you were to take a look at these hyper-agreeable foxes, their visual characteristics are very similar to a dog. They'll have spots. Like I said before, they'll wag their tails. They have floppy ears. But the physical characteristic that we're looking at the most here is the eyes, the shape of the eyes. And you'll find that domesticated foxes are, on average, far more supine than both the wild fox counterpart and the... And it's harder to find photos of these, but the foxes that they had bred for hyperaggression. That's awesome. So let me just do a little bit of active listening here, repeat back what you said to make sure I understand it. So basically we have wild foxes uh, that aren't very agreeable. They're wild animals. They wanted to make domesticated foxes that are nearly as agreeable and nearly as domesticated, similar to a dog's level. And so they bred them for agreeableness only, right? They didn't care about how the foxes looked. They weren't breeding them for appearance, right? They were just breeding them for behavior. Right. It was purely for behavior. But as they bred them more and more, and you have more and more generations that get more and more agreeable, more and more supine in behavior, what they found, what we see, is that the foxes also looked way more supine than their less agreeable ancestors, their more prone behavioral ancestors. Is that correct? Correct. Yeah, that's amazing. Yeah. No, it is. Honestly, that's amazing support for the prone supine dichotomy, um, but is a very compelling piece of evidence. Mm -hmm. This is evidence for a couple of things too. Not only that prone and supine, at least in animals, has already been demonstrated to be firmly related to behavior, but also that it's genetic. It's not that each animal is born with a certain probability of being prone and supine, but that rather, if you have two supine parents, you're more, more likely to also be supine. So we're going to talk about um, monogamy and polygamy in the animal kingdom as well and how that relates to prone supine. Before you reveal the secret to uh, yes. our audience, so, uh, to our listeners, listeners, what behavior is more prone, polygamy or monogamy? Uh, monogamy is far more related to supine than polygamy is. Colby, why would you say monogamy is a supine behavior? Oh, that's a hard one. Um, we know that it's a supine behavior from uh, observation, from anecdotes at least. But I would say supine latches on more. Supine feels more emotion and it has stronger attachments. So this kind of goes along with what we're talking about with like reaction and action and disengaging and engaging. Um, but it's a little more specific now. So supine behavior uh, attaches to things more. Um, supine behavior, you experience more emotion as a supine person. If you're experiencing more emotion, generally you'll be more monogamous. Um, obviously emotion can also cause you to be more polygamous, but emotion more often supports monogamy than polygamy, uh, in my opinion. 
Prone is about action, right? So it's about changing states. Supine is reactionary. So a state is changed and then supine happens. That supine behavior occurs. So when you are in a relationship, like let's, we're just talking about people here, not, you know, but animals, it gets a little weird, but with people, uh, if you're single, that is a state of being, right? So would you say someone who's prone or someone who's supine is more likely to ask someone out on a date? Great example. Listeners, what do you say? Prone is the answer. Prone people are more likely to ask someone out on a date than supine. Why? Relating back, prone is about changing states. So if someone is single and they want to change their state of being, in this case, be in a relationship, a prone person is more likely to actually act on that desire. So conversely, two people are together. Who is more likely to go through the effort and the emotional turmoil of breaking up that relationship? Prone or supine? Right. I think that's the, that's the greatest reason why. It's because prone people have more of an action bias. They're more willing to disrupt the status quo um, to do things other than what has always been done. They're more likely to take action. And so it, it's, you know, this is a way that we're able to explain what this observation in people. It's not fair to make that same connection to animals because we honestly have no idea why animals do most of the things they do. You know, we can give rationales behind it, but until you can actually ask the animal why he's staying monogamous with his other animal, like it's not fair to assume that these things connect perfectly to animals. But the fact still remains, an animal that is monogamous is far more likely to appear supine than an animal that is polygamous. The action bias and the willing to disrupt status quo and take action, do things, whether they're right or wrong, that makes sense why prone people are more likely to cheat. Um, I'm not sure it explains why prone people are more likely to be polygamous um, or polyamorous. So in, in modern day vernacular, polyamorous means that you and all of your partners are all aware. So polyamorous technically isn't cheating, but you would say that polyamorous people are probably more likely to be prone, right? I would assume so. I honestly don't know enough people to be able to make that observation directly though. If that is the case, which I suspect it is, my justification for that probably is that it was probably difficult to be polyamorous if you're emotionally attached and it affects you very strongly. That's my guess. Yeah, I would agree, I think. I know I would have a very hard time being polyamorous. Yeah, well, we've uh, polyamorism isn't our forte, so I could be wrong, but I imagine <laughs> that prone people are more likely to be polyamorous. <laughs> Um, no, that's good. That's a good caveat. I just wanted to make the difference between cheating and polyamory, basically. Right. I mean, also, if someone wants to be polyamorous, they have to ask a lot more people out. If you're supine, you're just less likely to ask people out, you know, in this, in this simplified example, anyways. All right. Well, maybe we should move on to effects on society and civilization as a whole. Alex, can you give us a 
at least high level understanding of how proneness and supineness affect society and civilization. Prone people are less likely to be agreeable. Uh, supine people are more likely to be agreeable. So a civilization or society that is made up of entirely prone people by nature is going to be less stable. And it'll be less stable because agreeableness is kind of required when you have a hierarchy. Like you need a certain level of agreeableness. And if everyone is at the same level of disagreeableness, it's really hard for hierarchies to form naturally. Now there's artificial means for that to happen, but people aren't artificially creating hierarchies in their day-to-day -day life. So would you say that it's true that if in a society or a civilization everyone was very prone, that you would have much more initiative in nearly every domain, but much less collaboration. And on right, the other right. hand, if everyone in the civilization were very supine, you would have much more collaboration, but much less initiative. Exactly. Um, to put in layman's terms, a, a completely supine society doesn't have anyone to take charge. And if even if that's enforced by artificial means, you know, through a voting system or whatever, whoever takes charge is going to be supine and less likely to come to a firm decision when there's multiple opinions on the table. And on the other hand, if everyone's supine, well, that's great. Everyone's going to try and get a lot done and do a lot of crazy stuff. And some people are going to be successful, but if you're unable to collaborate and have a good hierarchy, then uh, civilization hardly exists. It, civilization is only as large as the largest hierarchy. I have a question for you. So what, what type is better, prone or supine? <laughs> um, I'd say that's pretty contextual. Depends. It depends. Are you someone who's stuck in a position of power? If so, probably be a much happier person if you are prone. Alternatively, if you are someone who's stuck at the bottom of some social ladder and you're, there's no opportunity for you to move up, you're probably going to be a much happier person if you're supine. So in this case, I'm defining better as happier. I couldn't have said it better myself. So I asked that question, you know, mostly as a joke, because I found that a lot of men who consider themselves intelligent will want to type themselves as T. We're actually referring to MBTI. They'll want to be a T type. Um, and if you tell them, no, you're an F type, they, they get a bit hurt and they think, oh, but I'm smart, I'm logical, so I must be T. But that really has very little to do with it, right? I mean, just because you're T doesn't mean that you're smarter. It has nothing to do with intelligence. Right, right? that's a great point to bring up because it's true. In fact, I think part of it is due to the fact that MBTI uses the word T for thinking and F for feeling. It's a terrible name, like... Ah, oh, well, you're an F-type, so obviously you don't think, and you're a T-type, so you're a genius. It's just like, oh, okay. Right there, they should have realized that they probably should have used different names for the, yeah, for the letters. Yeah, definitely, <laughs> definitely. Not, not only that, but this attachment of logic to T is a faulty attachment, in my opinion, because... Completely, completely false, and, I agree. And again, like, we are straying from the MBTI system so 
probably the best way to say it is logical thinking does not necessarily correlate with prone. I mean, you can be a smart person who's prone, but you can also be a complete bumbling idiot who's prone. Prone in the supine is describing uh, social behaviors. It is not describing intelligence level. Exactly. It has nothing to do with intelligence level, uh, your propensity for logical thought. It's about attachments. It's about actions. It's about reactions. It's about social behavior. Um, so it's more like, I almost just think of it as F is a thing and T is less of that thing. Do you know what I mean? So like, it's almost like it's, it's still a spectrum, but on the absolute far end of F is someone who's very attached, very emotional, uh, very reactionary and, and affected by things. But then on the far side of T is just the further nothing. you get from supine, the more dissociative. Absolutely. That's the word I'd right? use to. The more likely you are to exhibit dissociative behaviors. So next week, we are going to be talking about local versus universal. So that's going to be really fun. I'm excited about this next episode. Um, if not Q&A episodes, we'll at least have Q&A uh, segments in episodes, right, Alex? Yes, definitely. So start sending questions. Um, start thinking of questions you have. A lot of this will be Q&A. Um, it's fun for you. It's fun for us. Uh, you can ask questions on our Reddit, our subreddit, physiotype, P-H-Y-S-I-O-T-Y-P-E, and whatever other social media we have by the time this is released. <laughs> mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yep, 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 yep. We also have a YouTube channel now. Um, for now, it'll just be another place to dump our podcasts. But feel free to subscribe in case we do something more interesting on that end. Awesome. Thanks, Alex. Thanks for listening in, guys. If you liked the show and if you enjoyed it, or even if you didn't and if you hated the show, uh, please, 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 please leave us a review. We enjoy looking at the feedback. It helps us learn where we can do better. Please, wherever it is you listen to your podcast, leave us a review. Thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you.